Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. We'd also like to thank Qualcomm for making today's show possible. First, they connected the phone to the internet. Now they're connecting the internet to everything else. Qualcomm, they're the restless inventors bringing the future forward faster. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who smuggles extra large sodas into New York for Michael Bloomberg, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Bradley Tusk, the CEO of Tusk Holdings. He previously served as deputy governor of Illinois and the vice president Lehman Brothers before running Mike Bloomberg's successful campaign for mayor in New York City in 2009. For nearly seven years, Tusk has advised companies like Uber, FanDuel, and Google on policy, regulation, and strategy. Bradley, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good, I love politics. I'm very excited about this. So we met relatively recently in New York. Well, we met once a couple of years ago. Uh I was uh, having drinks with Travis. Uh, then you were the next person having drinks oh, with Travis, okay. and we overlapped for like five minutes. And how did that go? Uh, I think it went okay. okay. I think I was ready to leave my meeting, yeah, so yeah. You know, I was happy was to have Was he horrified someone. that I was showing up or not? Um, At the time, he liked me. I was excited about it. Yeah, this yeah. was probably three, four years yeah, ago. Yeah, before he was Travis um, And then, yeah, we, we spent some time uh, in New York City together a couple months ago. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, you know, the Bloomberg world uh, loves to talk about you. So Indeed. Shiki has a lot of characters. Shiki, exactly. So let's talk about your history. I, I like to get to know people what they did before this. Now, you were you were the deputy governor of I, Illinois. I was. What was that? I know. It was kind of crazy. Like, so, I know that. So I was working for Mike when he was mayor, mm-hmm. sitting in City Hall in the, the bullpen. This is the first This is the term. first term, pretty mm-hmm. early on. And the phone rings, and it's a friend of mine, and he says, hey, do you want to be deputy governor of Illinois? And oh. I said, what's a deputy governor? Why are you calling me? Right. And the answer was, he's the guy that runs the state. And so, you know, there's probably two reasons why it happened, because I was a weird choice. What were you doing at the Bloomberg? Uh, so I was running the, the a commission to change the city charter for Mike. So I ran that campaign. We won. And then early on in Mike's first term, he made a lot of decisions that turned to be good decisions, but they were unpopular. The mm-hmm. smoking ban, he closed firehouses, he raised property taxes. Mm-hmm. And so I had this theory that we're never going to reelect this guy based on his charm and charisma. Mm-hmm. Let's try to show he is the most transparent, competent mayor ever. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and made a list of every single thing he promised in the first campaign. I read every newspaper transcript, every debate transcript, everything mm-hmm. I get my hands on. Turned out there were about 380 of them. Mm-hmm. And I started going around to all the different commissioners of the agencies and saying, how are you doing on these 12 things? Mm-hmm. And they'd say, what 12 things? Because oh, running for office and holding office are like two, two totally separate things. jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, you got to do these. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in five months, we're going to publicly announce where every single one of them stands, whether we've done it, failed to do it, changed and our why. mind, and why. Mm-hmm. And, and we did. And what was cool about it was a time sort of challenge the notion that, that this was a rare thing to do and went back and couldn't find any politician that had done it. Right. And I think it helped just further the basic notion that Mike was just a totally different kind of elected official. Let's back up further, though, from your yeah. your governorship of yeah. Illinois. Yeah. You started where? How did you get into so, this business? So um, summer of 92. It's dirty business. Yeah, it's very dirty business. Yeah. Uh, the summer of 92, the Democratic Convention's in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, 18 years old. I just finished my freshman year of college. I'm a first-generation American. We didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. But my dad had a friend who was a lawyer for the Carpenters Union. Uh-huh. And this guy called me up one day and said, hey, I can get you a Carpenters Pass to the convention. Do you want to go? Mm-hmm. 
great. Do you have to build things? Well, he said just pretend if someone okay. asks you to do it. So, you know, if you look in the newspaper, it says the convention's from like noon to midnight, even though nothing really happens to like 8.30, right. but I didn't know that. I was a super naive kid. So I show up, and it's like two guys running for state rep in Montana speaking, and no one else is there. Mm-hmm. But Ed Rendell, who at the time was the mayor of Philadelphia, Philadelphia yeah. was sitting in the audience by himself, and I figured out, I just finished my freshman year at Penn's. I'm like, okay, I live in Philly for college. He's the mayor of Philly. I'll go say hi. Mm-hmm. And you know, Rendell, if, if he's not talking to you, he's talking to the empty chair. He's right, talking right. either yeah, way. He likes to talk. So we're chatting. You know, Ten minutes in, I realized probably used my time. I said, "Thanks, Mr. Mayor." And he said, "Are you busy back to school?" And I said, mm-hmm. "No, not really." He said, "Okay, send me a note. We'll set up an internship." So I go home. Wow. I write a letter. It gets better. And I mail it in. And what I didn't know then, but I know now, is correspondence is the black hole of government. Right. right? Everything okay. goes in. Nothing comes back mm-hmm. out. But I don't know this. So every day I'm opening the mailbox. Where's the Waiting letter from the? Break. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I get back to school. Of course, no letter. And you know, retrospect, it's it's sort of a crazy thing to have done. But I was so naive that I thought I'll go see him. Mm-hmm. So I went to City Hall, mm-hmm. and I got to like not his secretary, but like, the outer office. I said, "Is the mayor here?" And like in retrospect, that's a crazy thing to do. Yeah. People who do that are either having now walked by that outer office and all my different jobs ever since. It's either people protesting, and I wasn't mm-hmm. protesting, or people who are actually crazy. And I didn't right. seem crazy. It's just this like super gullible kid. And the you know the woman was like this old South Philly Italian lady, just really nice. And she said, "Oh, he's a little busy right, right. now." Being kind mayor. of surprised being mayor. Um, and I said, "Can I leave a note?" I said, okay. So I write a note. I take the subway back to the dorm room. Finally, it hits like, you idiot. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. I get back to the door and the phone rings. Hold for the mayor. I said, when wow. are you coming to work? And that's how I started. So wow. I worked for him all You know, that's how I got my job at the Washington Post. So you just showed up? I showed up. Well, yeah. no, I complained. I compla- I made a phone call, got through to the Metro editor by accident, and started yelling at him for a bad story they wrote about Georgetown. And he said, why don't you come down here and say that to my face? And, and you did. And I did. And yeah. I got the, I got an internship, but it was like that. It was, right. So the lesson to all your obnoxious. kids listening is be obnoxious, is be obnoxious <laughs> and just show up yeah, and exactly. see what happens. So you, you started working for the mayor. So worked for him through college. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do? So uh, he had this kind of office of policy and planning, which is like come up with, with weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And Philadelphia had a problem where they were had a hard time attracting kind of talented middle management to government. Mm-hmm. So they said, create an internship, pro- a post-college fellowship program for city government. So in, as I was doing the research, New York City already had one. And when I was meeting with them, they said, how old are you? And I was like, 20, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you should apply for our program. Uh-huh. So I did. And I went to work at the New York City Parks Department. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that out of college. And then I went to law school, um, but knew I didn't want to practice law. Mm-hmm. And so I had this sort of existential crisis because my Jewish parents couldn't think of anything what could be better than going to work at a law firm? Right, like they could exactly. tell all their friends. Mm-hmm. And instead, I just sort of spurn all of that, go back to the parks department. And, you know, like an episode of Amy Poehler's show. Ca- kind ahead. of. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a cool place to be. And you know, what was interesting about it was we had this commissioner who's sort of this legendary crazy figure named Henry Stern. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of up for letting me do whatever. So when I was in law school, I had sort of done all this, this work around social norm theory and how you could get certain laws obeyed without having to put a police presence on it. So I focused on the leash law, you oh. know, people keeping their dogs on a leash. And then when I got back to parks, I said to Henry, like, can I try this? And he was like, sure. What did you do? And so signs? we did all kinds of stuff. We had signs in eight different languages saying things like, if you don't want to clean up after your dog, you don't deserve to own one. Oh, wow. We raised fines, like a thousand bucks for the third offense. But then we also opened up all these dog runs to give people an right. alternative. And we tried to basically build this sort of social norm that Unleashed dogs are in a crowded environment like New York City are a problem for wildlife, for parks, for cleanliness, even for oh the God. safety of the dogs. And it went up to like 80%. So it was, it was so it's government doesn't have Right. Innovation. It was cool. Um, and then I get a call saying, Do you want to be Chuck Schumer's communications director? 
And I said, not, not really. I don't want to do press. I don't want to live in Washington. I don't want to work in Congress. And of course, because I didn't want the job, that made him really want to hire me. Sure. And so I did that for, for two years. And, you know, there's that joke, the most dangerous place in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a TV camera. Yes. And so, you know, he, he is a PR genius, but it is the most yeah. sort of grueling thing you can imagine. And then 9-11 actually happened right in the middle of that, uh-huh. uh, of my time there. So it was actually kind of meaningful for a while because the work we were doing to help New York recover. Mike wins. Uh, Shiki says, come to City Hall. Um, I do. And then I get this you call. kick us back to, hey, do you want to be deputy governor of so, Illinois? So here's the story. Um, a guy named Rod Blagojevich had just won the governor's. Yes, him. You might remember him. Yeah. So, um, Isn't he in jail? He is. He's in the middle of a 14-year yeah. sentence. Yeah, so he, they kind of realized two things. There's a benign explanation for this and a less benign. So the benign would be, I was 29. I kind of knew a little bit about a lot of things. Policy, mm-hmm. press, law, operations. And because it was such a career-making job, they knew he was kind of crazy, and they figured, okay, we need someone who, it's such a so important, a big opportunity for them, they'll just sort of deal with it and work throughout, which was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the less benign argument would be they had all kinds of illegal schemes, they wanted someone really young and gullible who wouldn't notice. Right. Uh, also probably true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a pretty cool job, because I oversaw the whole budget, every employee, so operations. Really were governor. <laughs> yeah, legislation. Well, to the point where... He wouldn't come. We talked earlier about that sort of the job of running for office and the job of holding office. So mm-hmm. someone like Mike Bloomberg is really great at holding office, not that into running for office. Mm-hmm. Blagojevich was a political genius, amazing mm-hmm. at running for mm-hmm. office. You know, the most talented retail politician I've ever seen, but no interest in the actual work itself. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't come to the office for you know a couple of months at a clip sometimes. Whoa. And I remember in the first after the first legislative session saying to him, okay, we got to sit down and go over all the bills. There's like 500 bills. You want to sign them? Do you want to veto them? And he just didn't want to do it. I felt like, hey, there's a deadline coming up. So I'm just like, sign, veto, sign. Oh and that God. was it. Just pretty much that was the next four years. Oh, but But what was cool about it was because there was no one telling us we couldn't, a lot of interesting policy stuff. So like we were the first state to import prescription drugs from Europe and Canada. Mm-hmm. We were the first state to tear down all the toll booths, build a full open road tolling system. Mm-hmm. Kind of because we could, right? You know, yeah. it was just like, what's the point of being governor if you're not going to do new interesting things? Right. So I did that for four years. He wins re-election in a landslide, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, I kind of know it's time to, to get out while the going's still good. Mm-hmm. And we had had this idea in Illinois of privatizing the state lottery under the theory that U.S. state lotteries are both um, highly regressive because it's government employees who are not really good at consumer products, so they pick the low-hanging fruit, which are poor people and old people, and not even that profitable. And most government-owned lotteries around the world are actually run by private companies who, in, who know how to run. Yeah, and it's it's not that they're so public-spirited, but because they want to expand the customer base, it becomes less progressive as a result because they're marketing and selling games to people like us, people mm-hmm. listen to this podcast, as opposed to people who are really trying to get rich off the lottery. Um, so I thought, hey, this is good public policy, and it could be really profitable. So I went to all the different banks on Wall Street and said, here's what I want to do. And then the one really made me an offer that I felt like they really meant it when we came to autonomy to do it. And they did. Um, they also took down the global economy with it called Lehman Brothers. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So, wow. I did, so I did that. I want for, to know where are you showing up next. Yeah, exactly. I know. I was a little worried about that. So, um, did that for almost two years. But the interesting thing was I spent five days a week going from state capital to state capital. So, I basically learned the politics of almost every state, which then became really useful, useful for in what Uber. we do now yeah. for Uber and all other like companies we work with. So, and then you went back and worked so with Uber. The, the, so, well, so I, Mike runs for a third term after Lehman. I run the campaign. We win. Right. I start a consulting firm initially with just kind of big companies. So with that that last term, he really did get more into the tech issues. Obviously, cities were yeah. his, his big thing. What was the – because New York was on the forefront of that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about I, that? Yeah, I think there's a few things. So one is Mike broadly understood – 
that New well, York he had a company that was an information and he's a tech guy, services. right? And he understood kind as a result, of, yeah. Kind, yeah, media, finance, tech, it's a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. Um, New York's economy is way too reliant on finance and tourism, mm-hmm. and we needed some other big industries to try to diversify. And because he's a tech guy, he liked the idea of it. So the first thing he did is we just tried to really make the city open and welcome to that. Uh, Bill, Bill Peduto in Pittsburgh is sort of doing that right now. I think mm-hmm. there are occasionally mayors, right? Exactly, there's autonomous cars. cars, everything else. There are occasionally mayors who really get that and throw their arms LA open to tried. it. LA has tried. Yeah, it points. LA is weird because their municipal power is actually fairly limited. But mm-hmm. um, So Mike did that. But then the thing he did that was sort of the most brilliant is if you look at the New York tech ecosystem, we've got a lot of capital, right? We have right. a lot of financial capital, human capital, media. We didn't have as much engineering talent. Right. And so he launched this competition to create a new engineering campus, applied sciences specifically, in New York City, uh, Cornell and Technion won this that. This was on Roosevelt Island. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's being, it's funny. I, I Where dr- is it now? It, it is physically under construction. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a program, I think Google still hosts it in, in their New York City office. So students are already going through it. But I drove by the other day, just on the FDR and looked over. It's actually, they've, they've done a lot of work. It's one of those times where like, you look and you're like, when did they build that building? Right. But they built it. So um, should open pretty soon. The idea is to, what was the idea? It's basically created? just to bring into physically into New York City a lot of engineers who want to do applied sciences and then link them up with New York City companies. Can you create that? I mean, you know, you're here in Silicon Valley now. Can you actually create innovation like that? Because a lot of people don't think you can. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Singapore is trying. Right, others. we'll see. But if you take the basic notion that the Valley is in part of the Valley because of Stanford, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when we mentioned why I mentioned Pittsburgh, you said Carnegie Mellon. Right. You know, there seems to need to be a university specifically geared towards innovation. Mm-hmm. Even though Columbia is a great school in, in New York Columbia, City. Columbia, NYU. It, but they're not tech schools per no. se. They're just good liberal arts colleges, very good schools. Um, and I think Mike's view is we needed something very specific to. Like an MIT. Exactly. And right. so we'll see if that works. So that was his plan as mayor. And I think it's very different than what, what you have with a lot of mayors around the country. It's right. almost ironic. The places where tech uh, employees want to live most, New York City today, San Francisco, Austin, are also the cities whose mayors are the most hostile often towards tech. Absolutely, Austin, you know, yeah. speaking of which. Austin, the fingerprints, them. right. But in New York, it's really, what's really interesting is that they have tried and tried again. And there's just to me, there's no big company there that you could Yeah, it's to. funny. So I've got this little side project <laughs> to get rid of the mayor because um, I really think <laughs> I he's horrible. And, um, we'll talk about that. And I've been looking for a candidate. You know, there's people who want to run who are politicians. That's mm-hmm. fine. But I'd rather get someone really great. And tech would be a good place to run out of because I think in a Democratic primary, Wall Street's not really a good a good way to approach the voters. And there isn't sort of a giant. There's not a Sheryl Sandberg of the no. tech community. It's not a Kara Swisher. So when you right. when you run for mayor of San Francisco, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't have that, yeah. right? And so can New York be a tech center? I mean, that would be the, the it would be the competitor to Silicon yeah, Valley. Yes and no. And San Francisco um, now. No, in the way that, and this is part of what I love about living in New York. It's so big and broad. There is no one thing, right? It's Wall Street, and it's it's tourism, and there's media, and there's marketing, and publishing in the UN. So I don't think it's tech can ever be like the game in town, right? Because it's just there's too many other things happening. So like it's not like when you're here where you just feel it so palpably right. all of the like time, like Hollywood, or, right? Or Hollywood would be the or same finance. thing. Finance, yeah, and and you definitely feel finance in, in New York, but I, so I don't think tech can ever be that in New York. But it could be a really big employer, absolutely, because there's a lot of money there and there's a lot of smart people there, and that's what people need. All right, we're here talking to Bradley Tusk. When we get back, we're going to talk about what Tusk Holdings does. It's a really interesting, innovative way to do political consulting. Is that how it's, you- it's Tusk. Well, so Tusk Venture specifically is a venture firm, venture business model that does political consulting. Okay, we'll get back and we'll talk about that with Bradley Tusk. 
Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which is an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for the iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. Bradley, what should I listen to yet? You use so Audible. We do. So when we drive around with the kids, we do books on tape or right. Audible. It's really digital. Uh, Percy Jackson. We've gone through the first. It's Percy, a. I'm a little Greek old for God. Percy Jackson. Yeah, I know. I've seen the movies good. with my children. Uh, so we have Percy Jackson, and then my son, who's seven, is just entering Potter. the Harry Potter. Harry. Anyway, when you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We'd like to thank Qualcomm for sponsoring today's episode. We're currently reviewing submissions to the Why Wait Lunch Contest that I've been telling you about. But in the meantime, if you listen to this podcast, you love innovation. You're also going to love the Why Wait Invent-Off by Qualcomm. It's an online documentary series in which two teams are challenged to invent something that uses the Internet of Things to save a life. The teams are given a Qualcomm Snapdragon-powered device and a Dragonboard 410C loaded with advanced processing power, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and GPS. And that Dragonboard is the size of a credit card. Check out qualcomm.com slash inventoff to see what they invented. Thanks, Qualcomm. We're here with Bradley Tusk, who is a venture capitalist political consultant. Is that Yeah, now? I think that's right. He's had I mean, a long political history, including right. running... Illinois, for some reason, yeah. is inexplicable <laughs> yeah. and just troubling in many ways. But you've now done this Tusk holding. It's very, it's unusual. There isn't, there isn't a lot of people We're doing this. We're the only ones who have, at least in the political space, this particular yeah, model. Yeah, because usually they take money. You guys right. take money and you take ad fees we, and so things like that, we, right? Yeah, that's pretty that's much what, what political consultants that's typically the business. do. It's mostly ad fees. Correct. Right. And so what we do instead is we work with pre-IPO companies in regulated industries solve their political problems or pursue specific opportunities, but solely in return for equity. Right. So I kind of fell into it by accident around five and a half years ago. I'm sitting in a meeting, the phone rings, it's Shiki. Mm-hmm. He says, hey, there's This a- is, may explain who Shiki is. Okay. Shiki no. is a friend of Karis who is uh, <laughs> Mike Bloomberg's kind of top yeah, advisor. That would be his more and, important um, job. And Kevin works at Bloomberg LP, yeah. and Kevin called me and said, hey, there's a guy with a He's small- the smoking man of all time. Like, he's always around. Like, yeah, he, he's sort of this the mythical character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, He's a wheel greaser. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he would agree with I, that. But, I think but, he would. He uh, have to if he was honest. In a moment of candor. Yeah. So he says, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? Ah. So I, later that day, I become Uber's first political consultant. Right. So small political. What did you think when you when you heard about their uh, political? You know, was it when they were in San Francisco it was, problems? So they, they just got to New York, and they got uh, slapped with a cease and desist order. Right, okay. And Travis said to me, we're Which not. Which they had experience in San Francisco. San Francisco, too. And he Which said, they ignored. Right. And New York, I think he felt, he said, hey, we're not a transportation company we're a tech company the rules don't apply to us and I said that's his motto yeah and I said well yes and no I I, I think that maybe in my experience a little more myth than, than reality but mm-hmm. um in a sense I think Uber actually does a much better job working with government than people realize You're doing a great job uh right no now. I, I all right go ahead I haven't done a lot of these deals for them sorry let me look into it and I get really lucky because he calls back and says, hey, your fee is a little steep. Um, would you take some equity? And thank ah. God I say yes. Uh-huh. Um, what did you think when no? I, I didn't know. I mean, I have to be. It's not like now where we have a whole investment now team. Like we analyze genius, stuff. Right. Yeah, I didn't know. He just seemed like an interesting guy. It was an interesting product. He was pretty intense. Had what, you used Uber? Did you? No. You know what? But it's funny. So you had Bill Gurley on the other day. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I was listening to your podcast this morning. And mm-hmm. Bill was talking about sort of 
Travis's passion just being such an outlier compared to almost anyone yes, else. Absolutely. You know, I, I sensed that, right? That I could feel sort of right away and said, okay, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And we went about kind of convincing successfully the New York State Tax and Limousine Commission that they didn't need to regulate Uber in the way that Talk they Talk a little bit more in detail about that because yeah, it was so an ugly fight. It wasn't it, it, well, ugly. this one wasn't, this one was not. The initial uh, one. The initial one was not because, um, A, Bloomberg was mayor and it was a more tech-friendly and more qualified, competent, talented administration. Mm-hmm. And I think once they understood that we weren't a traditional limo base, mm-hmm. they were willing to say, okay, let's figure out how to apply this more more intelligently. And then we've got an affidavit that we signed that said, like, we are not these things. We're like, okay. So, um, but this was when they got in trouble for the snowstorm, too. Is this before? Or this would have been, after. this was before the snowstorm. Okay. And then Travis the said, surge hey, pricing. yeah, uh, can you do this in other places? And next thing I know, we're sort of helping solve the same problems in Boston and Chicago and L.A. and Philly and so on. Um, and that sort of led to spending the last you know five years helping Uber fight the tax industry. But the fight you were referring to was last summer, Mayor de Blasio, who's the mayor of New York City and has one of his biggest campaign contributors to the taxi industry, proposed this like cap on Uber's growth in Manhattan, which was insane. Like, And so... But the way you know the, the New York City Council works, the suspense is whether the vote's going to be fifty-one nothing or forty-nine two, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. we need to win twenty-six votes to beat it back. And there's a saying you can't fight City Hall, but we did mm-hmm. very, very aggressively. And so talk about the ta- if you were on the taxi side, what else would you do? Uh, other Put than yourself. Trying, and- I mean, what you should, what they should have done was not for thirty years relied on campaign contributions to be their only form of outreach. They they didn't innovate at all. And one of the things that they did that I think really came back to bite them in the campaign we ran last summer is it's a it's an industry with a tremendous history of racism, right? Mm-hmm. So what we found is when we got into this very public fight with City Hall and the taxi industry, there was a huge amount of institutional support from African American clergy, political leaders, colonists. Because they're not getting picked up. Because they're not getting picked up, right? right? And they said, you know what? Every time I press the Uber button, I get picked up every single hundred percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, the taxi industry just is like the quintessential example of an industry that got fat, lazy, failed to innovate, and then just tried to use political connections to stop Uber. And at the end of the day, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? Right. So, but. You're using political connections to do that. I mean, we are using we, we what we did at least last summer was run a super aggressive. So talk campaign. about you. It was very aggressive. Yes. And talk about why you did it the way you did, and explain well, some of the things you did. Sure. So the tactics. This was probably the most multifaceted tech advocacy campaign that I've ever seen. I'm not aware of anything. Which was we had we had about four million dollars in TV ads saying saying a few things. Suck. It was Taxis really you know we did we hit the Blasio from the left. So de Blasio is this very progressive style mayor, and he always does well when it's him versus capitalism. We said, you know what? You are both hurting minorities who rely on Uber to get around and drivers who are typically hardworking immigrants who are trying to make their way in the United so States. So we had all these really gut-wrenching ads from drivers and, and riders hitting them from the left. And then the city council is so liberal, they said, oh, shit, you know, our, our support, that this is these are our voters. And then we went after council members by name in the mail. There's lots of taxi industry. And we got every editorial board on, on board. And we did big events with rallies. And there was a woman named Caitlin who was, I think she was, intern or young employee at the Uber New York office, and she had this idea that one of the options could be de Blasio. When you press it, it's a 25-minute wait time. Here's why. <laughs> Click here to email or tweet at your council member. And yeah. it was genius. Uh-huh. Um, and it just ended up being this sort of round-the-clock campaign, and we just kept picking Did they up expect council it? members. Did they? No. Not that I expected, but what blew me away was... I mean, Uber's known for being aggressive. Yeah. So, yeah. so this was different, yeah. right? Um, 
But we had to win because the whole world is watching what happens in New York, right? So mm-hmm. if you lost this in New York, you'd be vulnerable everywhere. Mm-hmm. You win, you actually have a chilling effect on bad regulation everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so we had to win. City Hall didn't expect it, nor did they really counter particularly well. And I think part of the reason why is the policy was so bogus, no one there even believed in it, right? It's one right. thing when you're fighting for something, even if it's a hard battle, but you believe in it. This was just pure pay to play. Um, in yeah, fact, the look, taxi commission was... Yeah, I mean, the mayor is currently under seven separate federal criminal investigations. I don't know that this is one of the topics, but it wouldn't surprise me because he clearly took money, let the taxing industry write the bill, put his name on it, introduced, had it introduced, and, you know, we beat it back. But but if you're not Uber, if you don't have Travis's aggressiveness and resources and what's at stake, you know, you just get steamrolled. Right. What would you do if you were the taxi industry, if you were on their side? What what could you do? Now or then? I mean, what they now. should have Now, you know, then I would be now. investing in Juno and Via. I would basically just try to partner with, there's no way that people are going to go back to the old way of taxis, right? right. And instead... It's a little easier in New York because you hail that there's more of them. And, yeah. But at the end of the day, people just don't like using traditional taxis mm-hmm. in the convenience they like with an Uber or, or other Getting services. in and out of the car is Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I would be saying, let me see what I can do to be involved in autonomous. How do I work with some of the upstart ride-sharing competitors? Um, but trying to just sort of protect your turf is not going to work. Let's go across the country. In yeah. Austin, not as successful. No. Was that Fingerprinted bad. I did not, right. although my wife is from Austin and her mm-hmm. family lives there. So everyone in Austin thinks I worked on it and okay. failed, so I kind right. of wish I had. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, no, and look, the fingerprinting, you know, it's an interesting issue. If I had to guess, because it is coming up in some other this cities now. This is the fingerprint Uber drivers. Drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming up in Chicago, Lyft Philly, Lyft. Yeah. And, and my guess is there will be some sort of more global, and I, I'm, I'm just guessing here, this is not based on conversations with mm-hmm. Travis or Rachel or anyone, but some sort of global solution on this that both helps regulators have some of the the certainty they want and safety, um, but does it in a way. I think part of the industry's argument is the method you want is wildly inefficient and not that good. So I think it's almost agreeing upon or relied upon Safety approach. System. And I think that'll happen. What um, is the challenges for not just Uber, Uber Lyft, and others in in, in fingerprinting? In, in, not in everything. And what are, to me, it's finger. It's safety. Yeah. So it's it's first of all, it's protectionism by the taxi industry. But when you get past that, people will claim potential safety issues. And then you know we're going to have we have issues around drivers as independent contractors. It's not just Uber. It's every right. single sharing economy company. In fact, we are. For Handy, we're running a coalition, Handy, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, and TaskRabbit, mm-hmm. to try to create a new worker classification right, between 1099 and W2. Yeah. So independent uh, contractor issues. And then third is going to be autonomous because the regulatory right. framework is really, really complex. And my view is you have to do that. I hate wa- doing things in Washington, but this is an example where you can't have every municipality, every city, city, county. Every you need kind of federal preemption, which means – you need to pass, you know, major legislation through Congress. If I were Hillary and I wanted something forward-thinking on tech, I would make autonomous autonomous uh, car regulation, yeah, an issue nationwide laws. Ab- absolutely. Look, what would they look like? Um, I think what it would set up as a standard for how autonomous cars can function, um, regulations around speed, you know, a whole variety of safety regulations. Um, maybe you're creating special lanes at first, you know, because it's not like we're going to flip a switch and every car is no, autonomous. No, it's going to be like the horse to car yeah, thing. Remember in New York gonna, on the west side, right, they used to have all those first, accidents. Right. Yeah, so you're going to see some version of that for the next probably decade, two decades, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking through those potential problems and how do you deal with it? How do you deal with the a socialization federal, A federal it? solution. I think so. So if you look at it, one corollary, it would be, Reagan wanted to raise the drinking age to 21. Mm-hmm. What he did that was very smart was he said, look, this is up to states. I can't make them do it. But 
you will not get your this year's federal highway money unless you do it. Right. And right. every state but Louisiana did it. Louisiana right. said, no, no, no. They like they, yeah, they like to keep drinking. Um, so so that, that's how you do it. So do you, how much of a chance that? Because, you know, Travis famously on the stage of one of my conferences to me said, well, once we get rid of drivers, you know, that's where we're headed. And he, he again, in a moment of candor, yeah. obviously what's going to happen, it caused a great consternation among sure. the drivers, jobs. Sure. Yeah. Now, I, I think that we're probably still quite a while away. So most people who are driving for Uber today are probably don't even envision themselves being an Uber driver in 10, 15, 20 right. years, something well, like that. Right. not going to be. It's right. going to be self-driving. Uh, so, but I, I think trucking is an area where that's really going to be an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to have to have, and I guess Uber is now a trucking company too because it bought auto, right. but you're going to have to have some sort of, after what's going to be a lot of fighting, deal with the Teamsters. So how say, are politicians going to even slightly so get behind that? So politicians are initially going to be job friendly. Job friendly, and you're going to have to, on the left, Democrats are going to be afraid of the Teamsters. On the right, a lot of people in a lot of red states are truckers, mm-hmm. right? So you're going to have problems on both ends. And I think what you're going to have to work out, so you just take trucking as an example, is okay. There's a, we there are this many truckers in the U.S. There's this much need for truckers. We will over time have early retirement attrition. For a while, you're going to have a trucker still in the cab somewhere to deal with it, last mile issues. So I remember when I was deputy governor, I mentioned open road tolling. We had to effectively figure out what do we do with the toll takers because right. we just don't need them anymore. Right. And in this case, with SEIU, they were very reasonable. And we were able mm-hmm. to sort of work out an agreement where some people took a, a, a buyout, some people shifted into other state jobs, some people just kind of, but, well, they said as they retire, into, we'll replace which them. Which I do want to talk about yeah. for a minute is the, the sharing economy. Yeah. You're working with Handy. Who yeah. else are you working with? Uh, Handy and, and Uber are the two main companies in the right. sharing economy. Right. And this is, where's this going? Gavin Newsom is pushing it very hard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Gonna... So this should be federal legislation, right? This mm-hmm. is a really good example of Washington in action and dysfunction mm-hmm. because really what you need to do is amend the, the IRS code, the tax code, mm-hmm. and that's an act of Congress. But I don't think anyone has any expectation that Congress can get their act together to do that. And so instead, it's going to end up being a state-by-state issue. So sure. here in California, New York are probably three big battlegrounds. What's ironic about it is you're going to have sharing economy, venture-backed companies pushing to be able to give benefits to workers mm-hmm. and unions pushing to not allow them to give benefits to workers because mm-hmm. the unions know if people can both have the flexibility of being an independent contractor and get portable benefits, why would they want to be W-2? And if they're not W-2, you can't unionize and you can't collect dues from them. So what does that do to the environment? Because I think this is much bigger, more than auto regulation. Which is, these are big, all big issues. Yeah. But you know, I had a very interesting interview with Gavin Newsom. He's like, every idea of the employee has to change, everything. And it should be done first in California, given right, well, obviously yeah. he wants to yeah, do that. But at the same time, it does make sense. This is where the change is happening yeah, rather I dramatically. Mean, the, the, the future of work is obviously going to look very different than it does today. Mm-hmm. And I think... The real trick with regulators and politicians is to find some people who are willing to not just, everyone sort of looks back and then they make their views based on what's already been and where the politics line up as opposed to what can be. So a guy like Gavin Newsom's pretty rare that he's uh, one of the rare forward thinking politicians on a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. On well, he was, this, turned out cannabis. to be right on the gay marriage. Yeah. He got on, killed when he did it. Right. But but he, he, I think he will be proven whether or not he ever becomes governor. I don't know, although I think that's not a bad idea at all. But I think over time, he will be proven right on a lot of but these issues. But poli- how can you get a public to say no more jobs that are different or no more drivers? Or right. like, how, how, so how I, is I, our I political thing going to have to change to, to he, take with these changes that tech is putting you know, throughout the world? A few things. So one is you've got to, the, the reason why the sharing economy and tech companies are saying let's pay into a portable benefits program because they recognize that if they want to keep doing what they're doing, they've got to come up with something that 
makes these attractive jobs that people want to be in. Even if they're independent contractors, you still need to do that. So it's not going to be a, hey, this is just the future, deal with it. It's going to have to be some sort of compromise, just like on any other issue, mm -hmm. where you figure out, okay, these are what workers are going to need, at least over a transition period. This is what we can afford to do. Uh, and trying to be thoughtful about it as opposed to just trying to mandate some particular solution that's clearly not going to work. Do you think politicians have the concept of lesser jobs, fewer jobs? Because that's really where, I mean, Larry Page at one point said it out loud, like yeah. there's, with AI, with, you know, computers will be replacing so many jobs. Right. This is... So they don't. And I think UBI, in a way, is an attempt by some people, I think a, a clever attempt by some people, mm -hmm. to try to introduce this this notion of it. And, you know, we're going to need in a whole bunch of ways some pretty radical reforms to the way the system works. So, like, I have this concept that I haven't gotten much traction on, but I'll, I'll try it on sure. you, right. which is take the minimum wage fight, right? Mm -hmm. Big big fight here in New York. Everyone always looks at it and says there has to be a winner or a loser, and the winner is either the employer or, or the, the employee, business, yeah. right? But I'm not sure that's really true. So what if you said, okay, we're going to raise them in a wage to 15 or 20 bucks an hour. We're going to mandate health care, paid sick, FMLA, all that stuff. But – we're going to figure out the delta of how much more that costs the company this year, and you're going to get a tax credit. So, because the theory right now is we have to pay taxes to fund social services to help people who are only making seven bucks an hour. If they're making twenty bucks an hour. They you don't need those social services. And if you think about it, right now when you and I pay that dollar in taxes, first we pay an accountant, then it goes to some sort of tax collection government agency, then it gets appropriated by a legislature who waits it in twenty different ridiculous ways, then it goes to a giant social service agency that's wildly inefficient huge union contracts, and then how much of that on the dollar makes it to the person who needs food stamps? 10 cents on the dollar? You know, this way, that the whole dollar is going directly from the employer to the employee. Mm -hmm. The employer is being held harmless, and the loser in this is government, because the theory is there's less government. you don't need as much of it, right? right. Now, obviously, public sector unions aren't going to like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, whether it's it's that or literally today we made an announcement around mobile voting. We've just, there are so many fundamental, functional problems in the economy, in our politics, in our government, that, you know, if we're not able to make these sort of structural changes, and I don't want, I, you know, you were giving Bill Gurley a hard time the other day for sort of being a pessimist on the on the bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to sound like an no, even broader pessimist. Time, but but yeah, we're talking about it. it right. Um, not, you know, societies kind of rise and fall, mm -hmm. right? And if we can't tackle some of these structural problems, 100%. We, yeah, we may not make it. And All so right. we've got to do it. So like, we announced uh, a little earlier today a challenge on mobile voting. This is your... Tusk this is Tusk, Tusk Ventures, yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the idea being that if someone can come forward with a good idea that both where people can securely vote, which is not super hard to do, mm -hmm. but then it has to be verified but anonymous because mm -hmm. you have to be able to vote in secret, we will A, provide some funding if you need it, but B, I think more importantly in this case, we will work with you to find a municipality or a state who will try this out in a pilot program We'll, we'll talk about way. it next, because yeah. I, I agree. I said something on Meet the Press about mobile voting is going to be the way they're going to do it in the future, and every all the old white men on the right. panel, I like voting in a box. I'm like, come on. <laughs> right. Nobody does that anymore, and it's That's so fraudulent. It's yeah. so easy. To be. Anyway, it was an interesting discussion, but yeah. the reaction was fascinating. All right, we're here with Bradley Tusk, who runs Tusk Ventures, a political consulting venture firm. Ever wonder how these ads on podcasts work? A startup pays the host, like me, to read a script about their disruptive product or service. We know you're choosing to listen, and that means you'll probably, at the very least, give any product or service we mention a serious consideration. But what if you were one of those startups who want to advertise on a podcast? Where do you start? That's where Oxford Road comes in. It's the leading advertising agency in consumer tech. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started with Oxford Road. Oxford Road engineers ads to perform. They buy media based on over $100 million in performance data, and their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. 
Go to oxfordroad.com scale, set up a free analysis and find out what it would cost you to test ads on a podcast and maybe the next script I'll be reading will be yours. Go to oxfordroad.com scale right now. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Normally, this is the part where I tell you what happened during the podcast, but instead I have a special guest here who can tell you what happened during the podcast because she was here. Hey, Kara. It's Amina. Miss you so much. We were talking about you for a while, actually. It was pretty good. Um, We also talked about Amina's awesome podcast, which is called... Call Your Girlfriend. And how she's become a giant internet star overnight (laughs) and has quit her day job. Allegedly. Some some of this is true. Allegedly. This is cool. We talked about how you got from there to here, how you built a presence for yourself on the internet. Yeah, we talked about how to do networking in a non-gross kind of way, uh, making media for ladies. You would not tell me who your super secret awesome marketing client is. And then you gave us awesome recommendations for other awesome podcasts. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all available for free on my podcast. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm here having a fascinating discussion with Bradley Tusk, who is a political consultant. He also runs a venture room by taking pieces of the companies you do. Now, you work for FanDuel also, gambling, another area? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. And what's interesting about it is it's a good usage of grassroots mobilization of customers, right? Mm -hmm. So so the one that- People like to bet. People like to bet, um, and look, these are games of skill, so it's a little different in terms mm-hmm. of that. Every state has a different definition of gambling, but what has been interesting about it is, in the same way that for Uber, we as a company and Uber have been able to mobilize our customers to advocate against bad regulations, mm-hmm. we'll do the same thing for FanDuel and DraftKings, where obviously it's not Where the same every kind of attorney scale. general goes against the. So, so they don't like it, but here's what happens. We go to a state rep, right, mm-hmm. in Kentucky or New York or you know, Arizona, wherever, and say, you have 2,300 constituents in your district who play daily fantasy sports. They don't know who you are. They don't vote. They're not political. But if you take this away from them, we're going to make sure they know who you are, and then they're going to hate you for the rest oh, of your fear life. fear and loathing. Yeah, and the reality well, is, if you're a politician, it's one thing if it's an ideological issue. But like, they don't care about They don't like this. gambling. It's a yeah, so That's far left and far right. The vast majority of them are like, ah, I, don't, I don't need this headache. Okay. Yeah. And that's why we've passed this now in nine states, and I think over the next probably two years of legislative sessions, we'll pass it pretty much everywhere. What about more serious gambling they have in Europe and other yeah, places? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because the, the climate keeps evolving. And in the casino world, there's no reason for anyone to the age of 40 to ever step foot in a casino because these games are really boring. Yeah. So like we're talking to a company right now that makes a slot machine terminal, but for different types of esports, World of Warcraft or, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, because that's the only thing that's going to attract people into physical casinos. Um, mm-hmm. You need you know, ways that people can wager on it, but at the same time play a game that they actually want to play. Right. Um, so the nature of... And increasingly on a mobile device. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why if casinos don't adapt, they will die. And lotteries too, if they don't adapt, they will die. Mm-hmm. So, But something's going to fill that void, and I think it's going to be esports and fantasy sports, and that's why we've been very active in that sector. And where do you think the fight is right now, realistically? You know, I think on the fantasy sports, I really do believe we're winning, and I I believe that because I'm putting my own capital to work on this. On esports, the issue hasn't hit the political radar screen yet. So politicians don't realize that people are betting on video games. They're going to lose their shit when they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have press conference after press conference. You know, Chuck Schumer will have 40 Sunday press conferences <laughs> about it. Um, and so, you know, the smart thing for esports companies to do, and we're working on this right now, is 
look at FanDuel and DraftKings and say, okay, what are the different consumer protections they're putting into place in these different pieces of legislation they're passing, and how do we implement these best practices now? So rather than being reactive, we're sure. proactive and we get out ahead of it. And I think some companies will and some won't, and the ones that will are going to survive. Well, let's talk about the reactive nature of yeah. politicians. You know, and I can I can just see an indignant Chuck Schumer press conference any day of the week, or any of them, really, yeah. pretty much. Some more indignant than others. Same thing happened in Austin, and pe- some people in Austin were behind, liked that win. Yeah. Some people some did people not. Did. Did not. They yeah. wanted to feel like they owned Austin, keep Austin. Right. Look, whatever, politicians, weird. though, are just reacting to their own set of incentives, which is they care about attention, they care about fundraising, they care about votes. Mm-hmm. And if you change the inputs, you're going to change the outputs. So if they thought, oh, people love esports, I don't want to mess with this. They're not going to, right? They're just going to do what they think is both popular and will get them covered. Why are they reactive instead? Like, let's look at this election. This has been a fascinating election. I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts yeah, on this. Sure. Trump literally is the first Twitter presidential candidate, as far as I can tell. The true effective use of the medium, yep. whether you like it or not, it's effective. Yeah, for sure. Hillary Clinton sort of stumbles along behind yeah. him. He's doing better at it, but really hasn't. It doesn't have the same kind of skills of social media. Right. Are politicians learning how to use these, or is it just simply reactive? No, it feels I, very reactive. Yeah, and, and I mean, they I don't understand. They, I mean, obviously, there's yeah. digital everything and campaigns. Occasionally, a, a candidate is intuitive. So Obama for, for fundraising online. Trump for Twitter. And then everyone Bernie says, oh, online. this is Bernie. Though Bernie in some ways was a little more derivative of what Obama already did. But I think then everyone says, oh, this is how you have to do it now. And they rush in and, and just try to emulate it, typically unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I still think it is somewhat dependent upon the personality capturing people's attention. And look, Trump, as abhorrent in my view as he is, you pay attention to him, mm-hmm. right? Um, Hillary struggles with this because she's just not as interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama captured people's attention. Bernie captures people's attention. So, but at the end of the day, they're reactive. But what's interesting is I would argue the solution to money in politics is actually this because as TV becomes less and less effective for reaching voters, 80% of the spend in a campaign is TV advertising, TVN. right? Once campaigns finally realize, and the, the political consultant equivalent of the old white guys that you were on Meet the Press mm-hmm. who you know desperately hang on to their TV buy commissions, mm-hmm. once they retire, then you're going to see a world where campaigns say, I can't reach anyone I need to reach, you no. know, on TV. And once they stop spending that money, then I think campaigns almost so become fully So what does a political digital. consultant in the future look like? What are they good at? I mean, I think they're good at Look, they're always good at the same thing, which is what's the right message to reach voters? How do you reach them? And who's the right messenger to do so? And how do you get them to the polls? I think those fundamental skill sets are always going to be, always have been and always will be the skill set. To vote. To vote and to reach voters. Mm -hmm. I think the difference is going to be rather than reaching them in this very clumsy, broad-based way where you're going to run a TV ad that reaches 12 million people with the hopes that, you know, the 52,000 you need to see that message are going to hopefully be watching at that time and see it, you can target them very, very individually and then, and then get them to vote. But ultimately, getting back to our point on mobile voting, it's only going to really work if people can vote on their phone, right? And that's when you have real So how long is that going to... I, I, it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, I pro- and I probably a couple of decades. And I get the worries about Russian hacking this year and everything yeah, else. Yeah, but you know what? That's, but voting anyway is but, fraudulent. But, and the real problem is, Roman look, times, in, right, in a presidential campaign, 60% of people will vote. That's not terrible. But next year, mayoral elections all over the country, and you're going to down to 10 15%. And that's okay. when you get the trouble. That's when people like Bill de Blasio end up getting elected. Mm-hmm. Russians don't so know. So you really like Bill de Blasio. I love him. Um, <laughs> the Russians don't know when the New York City mayoral primary is, right? Uh-huh. They don't care. So I don't think that's a real concern. I think it's in some ways, just like we talked about the horse and buggy and cars, where autonomous vehicles and traditional vehicles will kind of coexist for a while, and it'll shift. I think you'll have the same thing, where you'll have 
mobile voting will hopefully start to have pilots in different jurisdictions. You know, um, I, you know it's funny. I was talking uh, to Steve Hilton about this the mm-hmm. other day. Because Who is married to Rachel Whetstone. Married to, but founder of CrowdPAC right. and was David Cameron's campaign manager. Right. And so he was telling Wears me about— Wears no shoes. Yep. He was wearing shoes at was dinner, it? but he warned me he might take them off. Yeah. That Seattle has a initiative where they're actually mailing people vouchers that are 25 bucks that they can then send to campaigns and candidates. Mm-hmm. So Steve's theory, I want to make sure I credit him because it was, was that Seattle might be open to it. You know, I think part of what we would need to do in this process is really took a good look at, you know, different elected officials around the country who are innovative in different ways mm-hmm. and do a lot of outreach and say, but hey, who pushes that button to push the button? Like, that's the Me. thing. We're going to do it. Okay. Because I think someone voting. has to. Yeah. Right. That's why we're, we're running this challenge is because I think if someone doesn't say, let's figure out who it's going to be talk to a lot of politicians, right. convince someone to give it a try. The good thing is, once it is a pilot somewhere, the press will f- totally follow it. It'll mm-hmm. get a lot of attention. And if it's positive attention, other politicians will then follow and suit presumably because the, they're reactive. Like presumably the issues would be around hacking and fraud. As yeah, they, people will worry as about that. As they are that. now. I mean, sure. that was an entire episode of Scandal, I think. Like yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you think you can't manipulate a voting machine? From, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. built in 1953. they're still writing about that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, ask Al Gore about that, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, sure, you're, you can come up with reasons to not do anything, but when 80% of an electorate isn't bothering to vote, and then it has And they all have some mobile phones. And they all have phones. They all have so phones. So how does that change the electorate? It goes very democratic is what it does, probably. Well, it's, it's, I was thinking about that. It's interesting. So if you are... A Republican, mm-hmm. if you are a traditional Republican, you got to hate this, right. right? Trump would probably love this, right. right? Because, you know, there's a lot of people Every in Pennsylvania and Ohio don't go and everywhere else that aren't going to vote, but maybe they, they have a phone and maybe they would on I their like phone. I like this Trump guy. Right. Yes, and he might all of a sudden win those states. So if it's a Republican, if it's an economic populist Republican, they very well may like this. Mm-hmm. If it's a kind of cultural wars Republican, they probably won't. And among the Democrats, who would they'd probably just like it. They should generally like it. And the kind of further left you are, the the more you should like it. Right. Um, but, you know, I think people are afraid of change in every sector. So when mobile voting will be ubiquitous? I'm going to be optimistic and say 20 years. 20 years. And that's optimism. Right. Uh, but my hope is that within a few years, we can have a pilot program in some jurisdiction. So we don't have to argue about getting to polling all these crazy laws they pass of keeping yeah. people away right. from polling it's booths. Just, right. You, just, you're, you can just vote with your phone. Yeah. Um, and I also think the whole criminal justice reform movement, which is interesting because it's sort of both on the left and the right, will probably start to restore voting rights more and more to ex-cons. Right. So you won't even need rules to keep people out. It's just like, hey, we want everyone to vote. Everyone has the technology in their pocket already to vote. Right. We're going to pass laws that accommodate it, and people will vote. And presumably the grapefruit is hacking is at some point. Yeah, but, but if you, ultimately, let's assume that hacking occurs. And, okay, there's a social harm by that. On the flip side, the social harm of politicians knowing that only 10% of the electorate votes, all they have to do is cater to that narrow segment of right. donors or voters. Right. They're ignored. That's why nothing gets done, because right. all they do is not piss off the And the, the same thing with funding, right. that you can fund quickly. It, exactly, right? So even if hacking ended up being rampant, I still think that the ultimate societal oh. harm of that would be lower than what we have today, which is a totally non-responsive political body because they're not stupid they know that they just need to cater right. to a few people and that's what they do right so which is what they and that's why all the fringes get to be part of yeah the, exactly the act yeah so let's finish up talking a little bit about so you so now you take money too but you mostly take, no no so i mean i have sure if you were comcast or walmart and you're or making investments right you know so because we have not completed that process my lawyers right. keep warning me not to talk about that okay. publicly so um <laughs> But uh, so that's a non-answer okay, uh, answer. Yes. But yeah, so what we do is we only take equity. We work with typically fifteen to twenty companies at any given time that we think are really interesting. 
often some sort of confrontational setup with, right. with government, but but not always. And then we will do things like pass legislation, block legislation, pass regulations, block regulations. Where do you win? Where do you win? Selling the equity or wait till Uber? Yeah, in some it's, it's distant future. We win with the exits, like any VC. But mm-hmm. you know, keep in mind for me in this case, I'm the LP. Right. Uh, my cost basis. And you have investors. No. no, I mean not not on the equity for services part right. of our model. Right. I just fund it out of the profits of our traditional consulting business, where we right. do take cash. Right. But half fifty four percent of that in New York would go to taxes anyway. Mm-hmm. And now I'm getting equity that I can hold and turn into cap gains. Mm-hmm. And you know we should be able to from the money that it costs us to run this to where even if we say a three x, which is you know good but not crazy good, you know we're looking at like a. 200x return wow. time. So it, the model, I think, makes sense. Now, the model, you have to have an appetite for risk, and you have to have some Which money. Which political consultants don't often. Often, They're right. They sort of pay for play. Kind uh, of yeah, you know, more like traditional. Right. Yeah. You've got to have an appetite for risk. You've got to have some, some capital to be able to do this. Um, and you've got to have some facility with tech policy and tech. And then I'm just really lucky that between the Uber validation and the Bloomberg validation, it's sort of an easy conversation mm-hmm. to have with so What would you love founders. to fight? What fight would you, digital tech fight you would know, you like it's to interesting. do? You're so, in the regulatory yeah, yeah. cars. So, 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 so we've been looking at different spaces saying exactly that question. Yeah. So desalination. You know, mm-hmm. Jerry Brown's task force is not going to solve the drought problem. No. Even Gavin Newsom's task force would not solve the they drought like problem. They like a task force. Though. Right. It's going to be some scientist in a lab mm-hmm. that comes up with an energy-efficient membrane for desalinating water. And that scientist can have no idea how to deal with fighting the water utilities, public procurement, all that. So we're already in a, in a great company called Nagari Water in New York that's developing a product, a purification product for that. Um, cannabis. That's so we, a big, John Parker's behind us, Gavin's also. Yep. Gavin's I'm with you on this. that, San and, Francisco. Um, you know, it may be more like five to seven years until the federal laws and the state laws are more reconciled, but I do think that that, you know, is a market that we want to be involved in. We've done some work with a company called Ease uh, that we think And that, you're pro-cannabis, correct? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Yes, all right, good. Um, so, so it's all of San Francisco. Right. So. so cannabis is another one, eSports, and we're already working in, Which one? in that. Which one? Kickback. Mm-hmm. And then uh, autonomous trucking, which we're not working with anyone yet. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the reasons I like trucking is because I do think that's where you can get some intrastate stuff done. Yeah, but you're correct quickly. on the on the left and right. I mean, on the red state truckers and the yeah, it's, it's going to be an issue. But that would make it a no a, one's going to like a it. fun issue. But that that's what makes it fun to yeah, work on, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, work classification, uh, which we're doing. So you know what we try to do is just find areas where we think these are really interesting regulatory fights. Because what we're finding is since we're sort of this only firm at this intersection of tech and politics, yes, we have duties to our portfolio companies, but there seems to be sort of this broader obligation to try to shape. Regulations, policy. Yeah, it's a big, you know, thinking, two cases book on, yeah. you know, this is the yeah, time with real regulation. Yeah, totally. So this election, it feels like backwards on technology. Yes. It feels like a lot of like this Amazon. I don't get this Amazon. Right, like right. everything Trump says, you're like well, the encryption fight with Apple. These yeah. are big, important fights going on. She wants to take us back to the 1990s. He wants to take us back to the 1890s. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> neither of them are particularly great. Yeah, um, and it was like Obama was the well, yeah. he still has a BlackBerry. Well, so we're and like, he, yeah, well, I think that's like for weird yeah. security reasons. Yeah. Um, but he gets it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the best we can do is, and which is where I think we'll land, Clinton, but with a very 1998 mindset still. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at their which tech plan they released, it's, you know, rural broadband and STEM mentoring. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it thinks they're fine. They're right. good. Yeah. But are they dealing with work classification or autonomous? Drones! And, yeah, drones, right? No, they're not dealing with any of the drones. really interesting issues. Drone you know, yeah, so we're, I'm a big skeptic on recreational drones. Yeah, I agree. They're I don't think. Yeah, and I think the regulatory prospects are, are horrible. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and I will say, because we spent 
probably the last hour criticizing the government. Mm-hmm. The FAA has actually done a they have pretty proactively thoughtful. good, thoughtful job. So they, mm-hmm. they deserve some credit for that. Right, right. Um, and in a weird FDA way. FDA on, on changing bodies. Yeah, that's another area. Yeah, absolutely. And especially mm-hmm. with everything happening in genomics, it's going to be more and more. So when you think about the two candidates who really are tech backward, I don't know how else to put it, really yeah. backward on immigration, on all kinds yeah. of issues, immigration is another yeah. issue. What politician today, and Bloomberg has been a fast forward yep. one, aside from Bloomberg or people you work for, what politician do you think is like, wow, that's pretty really good. Thoughtful. So I think Mark Warner's thoughtful, especially mm-hmm. work classification. I think Gavin is thoughtful on mm-hmm. work classification and uh, cannabis. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Peduto, the mayor of, of Pittsburgh, is, is really thoughtful on a lot of different issues. So I, I think there are some, some thoughtful politicians out there. But the question I thought you were going to ask is, what will really be the upshot of the election? And right. to me, what it comes yeah. down to is, Hillary's cabinet appointments, right? So I think in some ways the Secretary of Transportation may be the most, for tax, the huh. most important pick she makes because they're going to oversee all the autonomous vehicle stuff on both cars right. and trucking, and they oversee the FAA, so that's that drone policy. That is a really good point. And I think it's really important that the sector use its influence, whatever they do have with her, to get someone good because I think on other areas like Secretary of Labor, CFPB, Education, that's the job she's going to give to the Sanders Warren wing, yeah. and they're all going to be very anti-tech. And so I think Warren certainly is. Yeah, and I think so. In in shaping Clinton's cabinet, and because nothing gets through Congress, much of it happens in agency administrative action. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that people are writing checks and bundling and hosting fundraisers, what if Trump wins? I, I still don't think that's actually really possible. Right. I have no but, idea who he would pick. I mean, I, I can't even. You know, it's this thing. The Times wrote these stories about how the for cab do- driver you just had. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. his limo driver. Who knows? I mean, I yeah. guess it'd be good for the the gaming sector because he's a mm-hmm. casino guy. But I, I have no idea. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think he has any idea. Yeah. But I do think that that's where those are the jobs that are those important. are the jobs that matter. And what right. I worry is Hillary will take. One person, you know, maybe Meg Whitman becomes the Commerce Secretary, and that's great, mm-hmm. but Commerce doesn't really regulate anything yeah, important. Yeah, they do the census. Yeah, right, exactly. So, like, I, I really hope that rather than saying, oh, you know, I'm putting, you know, Meg Whitman in or Mary Meeker or whoever, it's someone impressive, but in a job that doesn't actually regulate or determine the future of tech. Yeah. Transportation. That, transportation, I wouldn't to have me, thought is, about is that. that's the. Um, I'm going to ask you one last yeah. question abroad. Have yeah. you moved abroad to do stuff? Because, you know, you work for Google, yeah, the European yeah. Union. Yeah, um, we've started to do that a little bit. Um, Boy, they're tough. Yes. The EU you is... You can roll all over the U.S. <laughs> regulators, right, right. presumably. The, the EU is tough. Uh, Actually, they we, just roll over themselves, so... We, uh, no, I like yeah, to think we push them. So, uh, EU, uh, we happen to have some people with some really good Latin American expertise, mm-hmm. um, so we're starting to work on, on some projects there. Um, look, my basic view is... Wherever the rule of law exists and mm-hmm. politicians are at least theoretically accountable to voters, the tools that we use are available to force policy change and to advocate. Um, obviously, in autocratic societies, it doesn't. Yeah, Europe's different in the sense that obviously it is so much uh, more privacy, heavily regulated right. and, and privacy concerned. But at the end of the day, they're still typically democratic societies. Have you solved the Uber problem in France, or do I still have to walk to airports? Uh, no, I, I, you, you, <laughs> are you, you there yet? To walk to airports? No, that is definitely way beyond my pay grade. <laughs> All right, um, but yeah, we're 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 starting to look at this and work on this around the world. Great, Bradley, this has been really fascinating. Cool. Thank you me. so much, and I'm going to hire you when I run. For for uh, mayor. I will do a pro bono. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, okay. All right. I'm holding you <laughs> yeah, to hold that. Hold me to it. Hold <laughs> you to it. I like that. Free political consulting. Anyway, Bradley, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with LFS CEO Sally Krawcheck, Uber board member Bill Gurley, and Representative Nancy Pelosi, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. 
Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka, comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.